So this message is entitled, Our God Reigns. Ezra chapters 5 through 6, verse 12. It's message number 4 of our Ezra sermon series. Now related to this year's overall theme, Standing Firm, Ezra 5 and 6 would say to you, If you want to stand firm, let it be on this granite stone that our God reigns, which means he's in command and control of all of life. At best, earthly rulers get either command or control, but not both. In reality, it's a chasing after the wind. A dictator may command you to cease speaking about Jesus, but ultimately, he can't control you. A dictator can seek to control your ministry with chains and execution, but he never gains command of your heart. No, only our God truly reigns. Only He truly holds both command and control of life. So let's pray and ask Him to bless the message this morning. Father, we don't want to come before you today by our own might or our own power by our mind, or by our muscle. We want to come by the power of your Spirit. We ask you in your grace to show us how great you are, to show us how you reign over all things by your word and by your power, God. Thank you for Ezra and the truth within it. And we pray that you would bless it to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. 16 long, sleepy years of silence and stalemate had passed since the adversaries of God's covenant people had discouraged and frustrated them, and all progress on the temple had ceased. The return exiles were frozen in fear, encased in the ice of complacency and inaction. It no longer took any work to resist the Jews. The Jews were their own resistance, their own problem, and their own enemy, just like the modern evangelicals today. They were no longer trying to make any progress on the one thing God had stirred their hearts to do when they were still living in exile. Have you ever been there? You know what God's called you to do, but you've stopped making progress. Well, just when the enemies of Israel seemed to have won, at just the right time, God broke the silence with his voice. Haggai and Zechariah, prophets sent by the Lord of hosts, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, brought God's message to bear on the people like a divine hammer. Sparks flew. The hearts of the elders of the Jews, Joshua and Zerubbabel, caught fire. They rose up and they led, to the people, they led the people to wield their hammers and their saws once again. To do what God had stirred the Jews to do back in Babylon, come what may. But when the people of God moved forward in the obedience of faith, a hornet's nest was agitated. A political leader and Persian governor of Judea named Tatanai and his whole group of Gentile politicians rose up to resist the Jewish construction project once again. These adversaries sought to intimidate the Jews by questioning the Jewish elders, essentially saying, 
Who gave you permission to rebuild this building? And what are your names so we can report you to the authorities? Then chapter 5, verse 5. But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. The implication from the rest of chapter 5 is that Tatnai and his cohort wrote a report to King Darius of what the Jews were doing, hoping this would once again stir the hornet's nest of royal disapproval. But in the end, as we discover in chapter 6, verses 1 through 12, this scheme against God's covenant people backfired. King Darius defended the Jews so that they would eventually be able to complete the temple. And as we examine Ezra 5 through 6, verse 12, we're going to see that the text is wrestling with the following question. Who reigns? Or who is in command and control of life? Is it the political ladder climbers opposing the Jews? Tatnai and his cohort? Is it human kings like Darius with his royal proclamations and harsh warnings? Or is it the God of the Jews? The God of heaven and earth, the God who speaks through the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, and the God who watches over the hearts of kings to protect his people and uphold his covenant faithfulness. Answer, our God reigns. Our God omnipotent reigns. Our God reigns over the poor and the lowly. Our God reigns over kings and governments. Our God reigns over politicians. Our God reigns over his covenant people and his covenant promises. Over every heart, every situation, all opposition, and beyond our imagination, our God reigns. And as I aim to make clear from our passage, he reigns in at least two ways. Through his word and through his watchful eye. His prophetic word, we'll see that that, that is Haggai and Zechariah's ministry mentioned in the passage. His watchful eye of providence, we'll see this especially in verse 5, where it says God's eye was on the Jews, so that King Darius defended them and helped them eventually complete the temple. So what difference is this going to make in your life? As we unpack the passage, I want you to be asking, what will I do with the God who reigns? What will I do as a believer with the God who reigns over all things by his word? What will I do with the God who reigns over all things by an all-seeing and sovereignly attentive eye? So let's examine our text in detail to see God reigning through his prophetic word in the watchful eye of his sovereignty. First, God reigns through his prophetic word, empowering us to both rest in God and risk for God. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. Now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedach, 
arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. The prophets Haggai and Zechariah's ministry is mentioned in two places in the entire book of Ezra. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 2, which we just read. And chapter 6, verse 14, which Kurt will touch on next week. Though there's little mention of these prophets in Ezra, their impact on Israel was nothing short of revival. We can see in the text that their ministry had at least two modes. A wake-up mode and a stay-awake mode. Call and comfort. Haggai and Zechariah woke up the people of God from a sort of spiritual slumber, verse 1. They, they then stuck with the people to support them with God's word to ensure they stayed awake, verse 2. The prophet's initial wake-up call was to become, not to become God's covenant people. No, the call was to rise up and to act like God's covenant people, to be who they already were. It sounds strangely familiar to the message of Ephesians, doesn't it? Were the people of God crying out for God to speak to them before Haggai and Zechariah came on the scene? The text doesn't say. But as Bill covered last week, what Ezra does document is that the exiles who returned had ceased all labors on the one thing God had stirred their hearts to do when they were in exile. Remember chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors or lawyers against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Does it say anyone was physically injured? No. It says the Jews got intimidated and frustrated by sleazy lawyers for hire. It once took swords and spears and warriors to combat God's people. Yet wherever the soles of their feet tread, Joshua led the people in victory. To stir fear in God's people, it once took Goliaths in the days of David. It once took gobs of soldiers covering the earth like locusts in the times of Gideon. But here in Ezra, although there was a real and present threat We see that all it took to squelch the people's will was the political pen of politicians and sleazy lawyers for hire threatening really, really mean things. Israel, why'd you stop building? Well, those guys over there said really, really mean things and and said if we built the temple, they, they would do really, really mean things to us. Well, did anyone get beat up or physically hurt? Well, no, but... They did hurt our feelings, and we were scared they would say and do really, really mean things to us. The Jews had never called their enemies bluff in 16 years. Sadly, at least for a time, it seemed as though the political pen was mightier than the proverbial covenantal sword. This neutralizing, this taming of the people of God sounds oddly like what's happened to the church today. Has any one of us here or someone we know personally actually suffered a physical beating for faith in Christ here in America? 
How about prison time? Torture? Execution? There are parts of the world where this is happening to Christians currently and regularly. It's no joke. But for us Christians in America, where we've enjoyed hundreds of years of political air cover for Christianity, what do we face on a day-to-day basis? The worst most of us have personally experienced from those outside the church is maybe unbelievers calling us really, really mean names and saying we can't come to their party or join their club. Actual physical violence for our faith is the exception. So reflect. In what ways has the church today mistakenly allowed the world, the American culture, to shut it up with the mere threat of really, really mean things? I'll confess that for most of my life, the biggest challenge for me sharing my faith has been a fear of making unbelievers mad at me and doing something really, really mean to me or saying something really, really mean about me. Should I try to rescue this lost person from eternal punishment in hell by sharing the good news of Christ? Well, they might get mad at me. I'll pass. Sadly, we can see ourselves in Ezra 5, can't we? People have become big in our minds, and God has become small. This is exactly where the Israelites were spiritually when Haggai and Zechariah came to town, frozen in fear, encased in the ice of complacency and inaction. It no longer took any work to resist them. The Jews were their own resistance, their own problem, their own enemy, just like the modern evangelical church in America today. But as it turns out, the fear-driven paralysis of the people actually highlights the faithfulness and goodness of God in the text. The people's weakness enables us to perceive God's abundant mercy and grace in the situation, the grace of His Word. Now, whereas the, the emphasis of the Old Testament books, Zechariah and Haggai, is to present the message of the prophets brought to the covenant people, Ezra's author doesn't mention one word of what Haggai and Zechariah said specifically. The author of Ezra, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is not highlighting what the prophets spoke, but the mere fact that they spoke. That's powerful. Where would these Jews have been in another 16 years if God hadn't broken the silence? If He hadn't graciously initiated revival, repentance, and radical obedience through the ministry of His prophets, what would have come of the temple? But God reigns over history by His word. This is how he's able to maintain his covenant faithfulness in spite of the weakness of his people. We get the blessing. He gets the credit. He gets the glory for his initiating and sustaining grace. As Bill mentioned last week, Ezra is summarizing over a hundred years of redemptive history. So only the most pivotal and impactful facts make it into the book. Ezra summarized the entire message and ministry of Haggai and Zechariah this way. They prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Verse 1. What's the emphasis? What's the banner over these prophets' entire ministry? Here's the banner. 
It's that they prophesied in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. God reigned over them. God reigned over the prophets, the people, and the covenant. The message these men spoke was a message in the name of God, the God who was over the Israelites, the God who reigned over the Jews. In the book of Zechariah, the prophet references Yahweh, the Lord of angel armies or hosts, God's covenant name, some 46 times. Haggai and Zechariah's message proclaiming and explaining the name of the covenant-keeping Lord of Israel, this was enough to wake up the children of Abraham. And the same is true today. We need to level up our faith in the power of God's word. Why? Look at the power of God's word in the passage. Did God change the people's situation? No. Did God remove political opposition? No. Did God remove every challenge and difficulty? No. What changed? Wasn't it the people's hearts? The hearts of the elders of the Jews changed. Their sleepy and cold souls caught fire with the message of the name of the Lord of hosts. And just when the enemies of Israel seemed to have won, at just the right time, God broke the silence with his voice, with the message of his name. What changed our hearts? God's word changed hearts. That's one way he reigns. And that's what it will take today. Our hearts need to catch fire with the message of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the covenant Lord of, his, of, of hosts who walked the earth to uphold ultimate covenant faithfulness. Who was crucified for our sins and rose from the grave victorious over Satan, sin, and death. His name is grace. His name is salvation. His name is eternal life. His name is hope. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that He is Lord, that our Jesus reigns. We have the prophetic word and the apostolic ministry here before us in the pages of Scripture. These words are no less powerful today than they were in the times that Ezra records. The Scriptures aren't weak. The problem is my heart. And so I find the holy calling of the gospel leads me to the gospel's holy comfort. Even in my failure and my guilt around the word of God and seeking God through his word, the gospel says, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I can look and see Christ there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and to pardon me. Stand firm then in the gospel as you struggle against temptation and as you struggle for a life rooted and grounded in the love of Christ through the Word of God. Because for too long, the world has needed to exert too little to no effort to resist the Christian church. It's not the world's fault. It's our fault. It's ours.
We need to repent of being our own resistance, our own problem, our own enemy. The reality is that nothing in our situation, our external challenges, the political climate, who's president, none of that needs to change for us to wake up and act like the people Christ died to make us. All that's needed is for one single, infinitely powerful drop of truth to make its way to the depths of our hearts. Is the word of God too weak to penetrate your heart? Or are you too hardened? You and I have more scripture available to us than the Jews of Ezra 5 did. We have the Old and New Testaments neatly bound. So ask yourself, while relying on the spotless righteousness of Christ alone for your righteousness, am I wasting the rich provision of God's word? Am I regularly seeking out God in the ministry of the word to listen for his comfort, strength, and direction? Over the next week or next month, how will I bring myself more under the grace and mercy of God through his word? So put your faith in this. Our God reigns through his word. Apart from his word, we have no authoritative and definitive access to divine perspective. Apart from scripture, we can know nothing of divine truth. Why? Because God holds a monopoly on truth, on knowledge, and on revelation. When it comes to access to divine perspective, God's the only show in town. Which means God's word is earth's most rare and valuable supernatural resource. What's more, Jesus quoted Deuteronomy, Man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. We can't afford to neglect the word, because we can't live without the Bible. Where else can we go? It's not like we can mine this resource in the mountains or deep tunnels. You can't 3D print it. You can't clone it. No, the word of God's truth is only found in him. He's its only source, its only fountainhead. His word is an 18-wheeler transporting the freight ton of his will. As Isaiah 55 reveals, the word of God is powerful and effective and never fails to accomplish what God sets out for it to do. In short, his word is our only food, our only drink, our only satisfaction, our only rest, our only vital covenantal connection to his will. We depend on God for his word, and God reigns over our hearts and our lives by the very supply of it. So in your lap this morning, if you hold a Bible, a pound of gold dust in the form of Holy Scripture lies on your lap. Don't let these precious truths slip through your fingers. So now we've seen the wake-up ministry of the prophets that woke up the Jews after 16 years of slumber. Now let's check out the stay-awake ministry of God's Word that sustained the people through struggle. What do I mean by stay-awake ministry? It's about ongoing prophetic support through, his, through God's word. Verse 2. 
Then Zerubbabel and Joshua arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Here we see that not only did God's word direct obedience, it supported obedience. It's the same way today. Zerubbabel and Joshua received Haggai and Zechariah's words. They placed their trust in those words and the Lord behind those words, and they obediently acted upon them. But the, but the grace and ministry of God's word didn't stop there. Verse 2 says, the prophets of God were with the Jews, supporting them. That support is the stay up, the maintenance ministry of the word that's so utterly vital to the church today. As kids on school days, many of us can remember our parents flipping on the lights and saying, time to wake up for school. But then we felt so tired. We laid there for a few more sweet minutes. And sometimes we'd start to drift back to sleep. But it's like our parents were psychic. You falling back to sleep in there? Stay awake, get up. At least that's what it was like at my house. (laughs) Zechariah and Haggai flipped on the light, and then they didn't let the people fall back to sleep. Time to wake up, church. Stay awake, church. Don't fall back asleep. In every generation, it's been the word of God, by the grace of God, that brought us to life. And today, it's the word of God by the grace of God, that continually keeps us alive day by day. This is another way God reigns over redemptive history and our lives by His Word. Every day, we need more of God's Word to keep us strengthened and serving Him. We need His Word to keep us awake to His purposes. Yesterday's diet isn't enough for today. Zechariah and Haggai didn't supply the word on a single day. They weren't a single supply drop. They were part of an entire divine supply chain. You and I need daily bread. We need the daily supply chain and not a single supply drop. We need new bread every day. So reflect on your own life. Where are you tempted to rely on yesterday's supply of God's word? Where are you tempted to rely on last Sunday's diet of the word as a reason to neglect neglect the word on Tuesday or Thursday? Where are you tempted to pass over parts of God's word because you already know that, already read that, already studied that? If God uses his word as a means of his reign over the church, then to run from the word is to run from his reign. Yet, isn't he our king? And aren't we his servants? What's more, if you decide to run toward the word of God, to consume God's truth regularly, while also depending fully on the Holy Spirit, to minister through the word, you'll be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's Romans 12. Transformed how? Well, from our text, it comes down to rest and risk. It's what happened to the Jews in our passage. The first impact of a regular supporting diet of God's word on the Jews was peace and rest. If we read between the lines, the people of God had been stress-paralyzed 
for the past 16 years because of the intimidation tactics of their political enemies. But under the wake, the wake up and stay awake ministry of the prophetic word, a newfound peace and rest apparently entered into the picture. The Jews began to rely on a new source of peace and rest. That that source was greater awareness of the promises of God in the name of God. They no longer felt the need to stay on the sidelines to keep from destroying the peace they had with unbelievers. Even if unbelievers didn't like, like them rebuilding the temple and oppose them, God's people could find rest in the truth of God that transcended the circumstances. And that's the impact God's word can have on your life. You become someone who increasingly rests in God. Besides greater rest and peace, the second impact of experiencing the regular supporting ministry of the word is the ability to take greater risks for God. Risk is reframed. It's reframed by grace, by divine perspective. The more rest and peace you receive from God, the less dangerous risks appear in your eyes. To live is Christ. To die, it's gain. This light and momentary affliction will yield a weight of glory. For the joy set before him, Christ endured the suffering of the cross. Isn't that what happened to the Jews in our passage? Risk was reframed through Zechariah and Haggai's message. Nothing changed in their circumstances or with their enemies. What changed was the Jews' perception of risk, right? A tree rooted deep into the ground, deep into underground streams, can bear fruit even during Colorado Springs droughts. Similarly, a Christian rooted deep in the Word can face stark conditions, yet endure with joy because the promises of God give him a transcendent source of power and a boldness to risk for God. The peace of God, which surpasses understanding, guards your heart and your mind in Christ. Philippians 4, 7. So ask yourself, where can I identify times and seasons of life where God's word was the difference maker between me giving up and versus me overcoming a particular temptation, challenge, or sin? Where have I seen God's word bring me peace in spite of circumstances? When it comes to sharing your faith, in the scarier aspects of our calling, where have I seen regular rhythms of Bible study be used by God to change how I see risk? So we've seen so far that God reigns by His Word. But we also see in our passage that God reigns by the watchful eye of His sovereignty, His providential supervision over the world and over the church. Let's pick the passage back up at verse 3. At the same time, Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shetharbazani and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and finish this structure? They also asked them this, What are the names of the men who are building this building? But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter 
concerning it. So you can see that God was watching over his covenant people, not passively, but actively, sovereignly, and effectively. The eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them. This divine, all-seeing supervision, effectively, although invisible to the human eye, brought about eternal covenant purposes of God at the same time that God was doing the watching. John Piper calls this purposeful sovereignty God's providence. Providence is God's purposeful sovereignty. The term providence is a historical theological term similar to the word trinity or discipleship. Neither term is in the Bible, but both are used to summarize and defend the teachings of Scripture over against heresy. The same is true with providence. You can find definitions of God's providence in the historic confessions of faith and in sermons of pastors of old. The 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, which we study in Philippalship, defines God's providence this way. God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, to the end for which they were created, according unto his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. Charles Spurgeon once described God's providence like this. I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes that every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit, as well as the sun in the heavens, that the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their courses. The creeping of an aphid over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence. The fall of leaves from a poplar is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. I share these quotes only to illustrate what is already clear from our text. God reigns over all things by his providential supervision, his watchful eye. Verse 5, the eye of their God was on Zerubbabel and Yeshua, and their adversaries did not stop them. That's all-seeing, all-knowing, all-powerful providence. This is the granite stone we stand on Our God reigns over every dust particle of our yesterdays and every molecule of our tomorrows. Ezra is like God's historical documentary with divine editorial notes. It's like the movie producer overdubbed his commentary as the movie played out. That's what verse 5 is. It's God's commentary through the author of Ezra. Because of this divine commentary, there's a ton of redemptive irony in our text. Irony in literature happens when we, the readers, can know something that the characters don't. In Ezra 5, neither Zerubbabel and Joshua, nor Tatnai and his group, could see or read about the eye of God in Ezra 5.5. 
The book of Ezra, of course, didn't exist yet. But we as readers can know the reality that God throughout redemptive history and in that situation was watching his people because of verses like verse 5. And that's how it is today. God's eye is watching here and now. So church, who reigns? In Judah and Jerusalem, Tatnai wanted to reign. In the kingdom of Persia, Darius would reign for a few short years. But over the universe and over the covenant with Israel and over every dust particle of history, our God forever reigns. Even today, dictators and governments and political parties on both sides of the aisle, they all want to reign over a different piece of earth. Sometimes the same piece of earth, spelling war. We've seen that happening in Ukraine, haven't we? The world is wrestling with the question, who reigns? But the nations rage and plot for dominion in vain. As Psalm 2 says, why do the nations rage and why do the peoples plot in vain? He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. God's providential eye is supervising it all according to wisdom and purpose, purposes that aren't always revealed to us in Scripture. But in the midst of world events, and in the midst of all of our questions as to why does God allow and ordain all we see around us, our passage is clear. The eye of our God is on the world and on His church to ensure His covenant faithfulness is upheld. And as Jason had mentioned, that's the theme of the entire book of Ezra. So what are you supposed to do with this God who reigns? What will you do with the God who reigns over all things by an all-seeing and providentially attentive eye? The text gives us guidance. The rest of our passage is essentially two political letters written by Gentile unbelievers, but preserved by Holy Scripture. I'd suggest to you that in these two letters, Ezra's author is outlining two responses all believers everywhere should, should have toward the eye of God's reigning providence over world events. Number one, to proclaim His reign. And number two, to hope in God's reign. So how are you supposed to respond to God's providential reign? Proclaim His reign to the lost. And hope in his reign in uncertainty. Proclaim his reign and hope in his reign. So first, let's see the proclaiming of his reign in the text. There are two ways we'll see the Jews proclaim God's reign that we can apply today. By sharing their own name and by sharing God's name. Well, because they're covenanted with God, it's all one thing. We'll see that as they proclaim their own name, they were simultaneously proclaiming God's name as the God who reigns. Here's what I mean. The letter to King Darius, written by Tatnai's group, is quoted in chapter 5, verses 6 through 17. The first several verses of the letter recap what already happened in chapter 5. And the last verse is where Tatnai's group asks Darius to search the na National Archives for Cyrus's decree that the Jews can rebuild the temple. So that's the beginning and ending of the letter. 
In the middle of the letter, there are six verses, verses 11 through 16, which provide us an example of how the Jews responded to the intimidating questions of Tatnai's group that they deployed to scare them. Those questions were, who gave you a decree to rebuild? And what are your names so that we can report you to the government? If not for this middle section of the letter, we otherwise wouldn't know how the elders of the Jews, Zerubbabel and Joshua, responded to their adversaries and how we can too. So verses 11 through 16 are probably one reason why God included this letter written by unbelievers as part of Holy Scripture. To the question, what are your names? The Jews answered, verses 11 through 13. We are servants of the God of heaven and earth. They didn't say, I'm Joshua and he's Zerubbabel. You can call him Z-Dog. <laughs> no, they skipped over what to call them. And they went deeper, theologically deeper, into a core reason for naming things or people in the first place. That is spiritual identity and covenant purpose. In other words, who cares what you call us? What we want you to know is who we are. That's our fundamental covenantal name. They continue to declare their name as they proclaim God's name in verses 12 through 13. We are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. That's Solomon. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. From Scripture we know that for the Jews, your name, or God's name, was less about checking your flight reservations or logging into your online bank account or knowing what to put on your tax return, and more about who you are at a fundamental level your spiritual identity and purpose as it connects you to God's redemptive covenantal story. We see this when Adam named Eve when he learned that their offspring would crush Satan's head. And we also see this when God renamed Abram to Abraham because of the promise that he would father innumerable, innumerable descendants. Names are, biblically speaking, huge. Their adversaries asked Zerubbabel and Joshua, what are your names so we can report you? Their answer? We're servants of the God of heaven and earth. In other words, our name and God's name, our fundamental identity and covenantal purpose is people ruled over by the king of heaven and earth. Their name and God's name were linked. They were one. Their names were covenantally married together. God's name was their last name as the bride of Christ. It's as if Satan said to the bride of Christ, what's your name? And the church responded, my name is Mrs. Bride of Christ, Mrs. Servant of the God of heaven and earth. They declared, he's our last name. We are servants of the Most High God. Hope Chapel, is God's salvation your last name? Your fundamental identity? Are you a people under the command and control of the God whose name, whose fundamental identity and covenant purpose is not only to reign over the universe, but also to reign over you and me as his people? 
This God reigns over us. We are his people. He is our God. And when you think about it, the Jews were simply paraphrasing what Zechariah told them as recorded in Zechariah 8. And I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. The point? When their adversaries punched them, the Jews bled Scripture by proclaiming the covenantal name they shared with God. And in so doing, they proclaimed His reign. You can't say there's only one true religion and that Jesus is the one and only exclusive way of salvation. That's hate speech against other religions and alternative spiritualities. What's your name so I can get you in trouble? Hope Chapel, don't tell them your name on your tax return. Tell them who you are in Christ. Your fundamental identity. Your purpose within the covenant of grace and redemptive history. When they say, what's your name? Tell them, I am a servant of Jesus, the God of heaven and earth. When they say, if you don't stop, we'll kill you. Tell them, I'm a servant of Jesus who died for my sins. And then he rose from the dead. Death is nothing. When you proclaim that you are reigned over by God, you are also proclaiming that God reigns. This is your strength, not your mind and not your muscles. So Hope Chapel, what should you do with the God who reigns over all things by an all-seeing and providentially attentive eye? Proclaim his reign over you. That's your name and His, your identity in Christ. The text gives us one more pointer, one more way to respond to our God who reigns. We're to hope in His reign. This isn't explicitly stated. It's implied by the text. Here's King Darius' letter in response to Tatnai in chapter 6, verses 6 through 7. Now therefore, Tatnai, governor of the province beyond the river, Keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Hey, Tat and I, leave those kids alone. <laughs> Isn't Darius' response a mind-blowing and heartwarming divine flex. Chapter 5, verse 5, said that the eye of their God was on the Jews so that Tatnai's group didn't stop them. And here it is. Chapter 5, verse 11, Mrs. Servant of the God of Heaven, the church, said that her God reigned over everything. Darius's letter is just one example of how. Is God's eye passive or uninvolved? No. God's eye is actively and effectively sovereign over human history. As Spurgeon said, the fall of leaves from a poplar is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. And in the providence of God, covenant people like you and me were a leaf in the wind of the Lord of hosts. So hope in the watchful eye of God's providence.
In the chaos, in the seemingly random, our God has fully ordained every second of our lives. In the face of uncertainty, when ungodly opposition or difficulty comes, and when you don't have control, He does. After all, church, you're the bride of Christ. Because of the cross and the resurrection, you share His covenantal name. We, the church, are misses bought with the precious blood of Christ. He won't forsake His name, nor will He forsake His bride. He is faithful to His covenant. And that is our confidence. This is our hope. Is there truly any reason to be afraid? So to sum up and close, since God reigns by His Word, seek His Word as your only source of life and peace. By grace, you will become someone who increasingly rests in God and risks for Him. Since God reigns by the all-seeing eye of His providence, Proclaim his covenantal name and yours as a servant of the God who reigns, that he would be glorified. And finally, in uncertainty, against opposition, when you can't command or control the future, place your hope in this fundamental truth. Our God reigns. Let's pray. You reign, Father. You reign over all things by your word and by the power of your all-seeing eye, God. You are in control. You are our Savior. You have rescued us through Christ. We are your people, and you are our God. Where else can we go but to you for life through your word? Where else will we find hope in the uncertainties and in the opposition than in your power, your reliability, your faithfulness, and your ability to control all things in order to stay faithful? We thank you for revealing these truths to us this morning, and we ask you to help us as we, we move out from this place to go in the power and the strength that you reign over all things. In Jesus' name, amen.